Blog Talk Radio.
how to work this into your dry firing game because the the way to master this, the way to become uh, an absolute monster with the six steps is going to be to do it during your dry fire game. That's going to be the, the absolute best way to do it. Just use the range time because, because everyone, even folks that live on a range, I live on a range, uh, and I still find that my range time is uh, is only a very small slice of my uh, of my available hours in the day because that's just the way it works out. However, uh, I can always even take a uh, a five minute pause in between. Uh, working off my shirt and pants and putting on my uh, my sleeping pantalones and uh, and practice the six steps to firing the shot really easily. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. We're also going to talk about target analysis tonight because uh, – if you've been to an Appleseed shoot, or even if you haven't, I'll tell you right now, that most folks go to the range and they shoot their box of shells. You know, they shoot at some, at some, hopefully some kind of paper target or something. If you shoot at bottles or cans or, or something like that, it, it really doesn't do you no good. You're wasting your time, your ammunition, everything. But hopefully somebody you're you're shooting at paper target and you're able to observe the impact of your rounds uh, on the on the paper all right but even if you're doing that, do you know what it means when you get through and you take a look at that paper and you see the holes in it? what does that mean to you if you if you are not able to interpret what your target is telling you, then you're putting yourself at a at a real loss with the amount of information you could be uh, gleaning from every range trip. So you need to understand target analysis because your target has the ability to tell you, uh, sometimes quite blatantly, some of the some of the things that you may be doing wrong. And uh, this might be things that, that you already know or it may be things you had no idea that you were doing wrong or you just may not know, you may not even know that you're doing something wrong until you look at your target and you're able to put the holes in the paper uh, together with the information uh, of target analysis and let that tell you that uh, either you're flinching or bucking or jerking or you're healing or or, or there's a, a myriad of things it could be. And if you learn to do your target analysis, then that will go a long ways toward helping you to understand the things that you're doing while you're shooting. So we're going to talk about that. And then uh, before the end of the show, I would like us to cover, we're not going to do an in-depth coverage of it because it, it deserves its own show. And uh, we had uh, uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy on uh, a few weeks ago to talk about medicine in your prep. But I'm, but I'm going to, uh, occasionally, I'm going to add slices, uh, different prepping slices, back in to rotation on the shows because I want to make sure that you're remembering to do this. If you're anything like me, if I don't write it down, if somebody doesn't come and tell me about it to 10 minutes later, then it never happened. And uh, I'll be, I will be completely meaning 
to do it. I'll be meaning to write a paper. I'll be meaning to uh, to do some practice, or I'll be meaning to change out a hammer on a on a rifle, or whatever the case may be. But sometimes if I don't get a reminder, then it's not going to happen. All right. So that's what I'm trying to do with you guys. I'm trying to give you some reminders to start your medical prep and what you need to be thinking about when you're doing it. So that will come near the end of the show. Let's start the show off at the beginning with uh, with the way that we always do it, and that is uh, if you guys like to call in, we welcome any calls. Uh, you can call in any time during the show, but uh, usually we try and put the bulk of them at the beginning of the show if we can do that as far as the thank you uh, and the recognition calls for, the, for your local Appleseed crew. That's to thank the folks uh, in your crew that uh, are hardworking folks and are donating their time and energy and money in order to push the Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Project mission forward. Uh, I want to thank uh, Floyd Ferguson uh, and the DFW crew. They put on a uh, an actual distance shoot uh, just this uh, last weekend, and I want to thank them for doing it. Not this weekend, but the weekend before last. I want to thank them for this. They did a great job. And uh, and Floyd and the DFW crew are working really hard there, and they're they're really putting together a great program. They just got a new uh, range that they can use for uh, actual distance for the uh, for Cinefar rifles, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing about the stuff that they're going to start doing. I want to thank uh, Tommy Newton and Roger Glenn in the Fredericksburg area because those two guys carry the bulk of the program for that area on their shoulders, and uh, they do a great job. I want to congratulate Ray Trinian. Uh, he got uh, he got his full instructor red hat this last week in uh, develop, and he deserved it. He did a great job. He's ready to go out uh, and start doing events, and he's a good man. Somewhere down underneath all of that facial hair is a good man. And uh, I want to thank him and give him congratulations for the hard work that he put into into becoming a full instructor. Because it's not an easy task. Uh, It's a long road. There's a lot of work in it. Uh, And... And whenever I say stuff about the NRA, I'm never saying it to bash them, okay? NRA is a great program. It's a great program, a lot of great folks. They've got a great uh, mission that they're working at, and they have some really good instructors. But I've I've been to a lot of the NRA classes, and I know that you can become an an NRA instructor. Uh, I won't say it's easy either, but it's, uh, it's certainly a lot easier than becoming an apple seed instructor. Uh, you cannot become an apple seed instructor with a two-day course. Uh, you're going to take the two-day course. Then you're going to come back and take another two-day course. Then you're going to ask to become an instructor uh, after you've shot the Rosman Standards. Then you're going to come back to another uh, two-day course weekend, and you're going to start your teaching there. And then you're going to come back to another one and another one and another one and another one. So pretty soon you've got uh, seven weekends, 14 days. Uh, If you are really sharp and speedy, then 
with 14 days, you could become a a full instructor. Uh, so there's a little bit of a difference right there. Uh, it takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of work. All right. So my thanks to all of the folks that are on that path that are dedicating themselves to coming and teaching at events every weekend. And my thanks and congratulations to those folks who have achieved their full instructor status uh, or gone on to achieve uh, uh, shoot ball status or uh, senior instructor status. My thanks to all of those folks. And while I'm saying that, I don't think I mentioned it, but Chuck Looning, Red Dot, here in Texas, is uh, now a senior instructor. And I want to congratulate him because uh, Chuck has put a lot of work into teaching at events. He's somewhere around the the 45 or 50 event mark, and, uh, and he's a good man. He's a good man, a dedicated instructor. If you have... Uh, someone that you would like to thank, then we'd like for you to call in and thank them. Because we push our instructing crews pretty hard. We push them pretty hard. And and we're good at that. We are good at riding them into the dust. But uh, sometimes we're not so great on saying thanks. And, uh, and we should get better at it. All right? So my thanks to all of the folks, and of course to my local crew here, uh, Lake Coonrod, who's here every single time I open the door. He's either waiting for me already, or uh, or we're racing each other to the range, and uh, and he's helping me deploy the flags, and set up the backers, and checking the uh, restroom facilities and everything else. Uh, Blair's always there with me, always there. And uh, Bill Cronk, Bill is usually there the day before. He's usually on Fridays to help me prep the range because because it's the range and some range I'm going to use. It's right here, which means I have to uh, mow acres and acres of grass, uh, a minimum of once a month, usually a lot more than that because I wait. It's a disaster. The grass is three feet high. But you've had to mow the, mow the grass uh, several times and weed eating and, and uh, all kinds of maintenance. And uh, for one person, that gets to be a chore. Uh, and usually, Bill Cronk is here on the Friday before the B event to, to help me do that. And I appreciate Bill doing that. We've got a range day coming up this weekend, and uh, we have quite a few uh, instructors and other volunteers are going to be showing up at the Davila location to do maintenance on the range for apple seed, and then also to spend some time prepping uh, the stations and uh, getting the gear together for the Battle Road USA, end of the world as we know it, zombie destruction running gun. It's going to be coming up on October 12th, and... Uh, there's still some slots left. I don't know if there's any slots. I don't believe there's any slots for RSOs. I think we all have all either 30 or 40 slots uh, already filled. 
if you want to find out if you can still do that, you can send a an email to Mark at BattleRoadUSA.com. Mark at BattleRoadUSA.com. You can ask me if there's any slides left. If you want to uh, to RSO the event, then you can come on Friday and do the run, and then you'll have to come back on Saturday and man one of the stages or or be a road guard or you know or or whatever. And uh, we'll waive your entrance fee of $100, and uh, and you'll be able to uh, run the event, get the T-shirt, eat the free meal, and uh, be an RSO at the event. But like I said, I don't know. I, I I believe that we already filled it up, but we still have a few spots left on the uh, on the Saturday run, the Saturday portion of the run. Although it's filling up pretty quick, so. <clears throat> If you want to make sure that you have a uh, that you get a slot number, and go to BattleRoadUSA.com and click on the uh, Zombie Running Gun, that'll take you to the information page and read up on there and see if it's what you really want to do. It's a four and a half mile looping course with uh, eight shooting stations for rifle and pistol, and then it has uh, some obstacles in between. These shooting stations, nothing too crazy, nothing wild. You're, uh, you'll be able to do it. We had uh, several women at the last event, uh, young women and uh, and not so young women that were running the event, and they were able to do it. So, so you can too. Uh, nothing big. There's like a skinny bridge over a over a dry ravine. It's dry right now. It might be full of mud by this time. October comes around. Uh, there's uh, uh, a, uh, a tall gate that has to be climbed. There's uh, a long train of uh, uh, tractor tires that will have to be crawled through. There's a uh, big chain link thing, fence thing that has to be crawled over. There is uh, uh, there's a hoop to do so up and down gravel hills and uh and quite a few other things. So there's uh there's a little bit uh, of other stuff on top of the four and a half miles and the eight shooting stations. But all of it can be done. And uh it says running gun. You don't have to run uh if long as you want to. You you don't have to run. You can walk the four and a half miles. Uh mainly uh we did it because we wanted folks we hear folks all the time saying, you know, if, if something such happens, I'm going to do such and such. And I'm going to, this is what I'm going to use. I'm going to use this, and I'm going to do this. And uh, and so we said, well, okay, maybe you will. And we, uh, we're setting this up so folks have a chance to try out uh, the way that they're going to run their gear or the way that they're going to carry their rifle, uh, the way that they're going to wear their pistol, uh, different things like that. See if it's uh, see if it's really going to work. Uh, I last year I uh, uh, the year before I or at Pecos I carried everything, everything in my belt, and I told you guys I think last week that that caused my pants to fall off. And uh, then uh, this last year at our event I put everything in my backpack, and that was. Uh, that was kind of rough too because I think I had uh, uh, probably about 500 rounds of 308 9 millimeter, and 
and that was awfully heavy. And uh, and we had a uh, integrity item in a coffee can in the middle of the bridge on the you know the little of the, the bridge I was telling you about over the top of that ravine. And that meant that when I stopped to get the integrity item out, I had to bend over, almost doubled over. And when I did that backpack full of uh, heavy lead ammunition, slid over sideways, and I thought, that's just about it. I'm just about gone. So that showed me some of the uh, the pitfalls of doing it that way. And that's what it's all about, is figuring out how, you're gonna, how your gear is going to run uh, on just a little tiny four-and-a-half of course, you know we're not going to make you do uh, uh, 20 miles. Uh, it's just four and a half miles. You'll see how your gear does uh, on that four and a half miles. Uh, I believe that uh, that there's another event going on. I think the same weekend, not far from here, and uh, I can't remember the name of the of the guy right now. But it's the I believe that one is about uh, 14 miles. It doesn't. I don't, I don't believe there's much of, much shooting in it, but it's uh, it's like a an event that teaches you how to how your bug out stuff is going to work. I think they have some different tours for you to go over, you know, mechanical tours, first aid, stuff like that. So uh, ours is only four and a half miles, but I'll tell you from from experience, it usually doesn't take more than a hundred yards for you to figure out if you're doing something that's wrong. If you're doing something that's wrong. Uh, after you go 100 yards, you're going to figure out that that may not be the right way to do something. You may have to stop and make an adjustment there or something like that. And that's what it's all about, a chance to see how your gear runs and how your strength, your stamina, and your shooting skills all have to work together in order for this to be a success. This will give you a chance to see how that's going. Uh, All right. If you uh, if you want to call in and tell any of your your local crews thank you, you can do so at three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. And I'm going to take another second here to talk about uh, Bible Road before we. Uh, before we get on with the rest of the uh, of the show, because because it costs me money to do the show, I got to pay a uh, pretty hefty chunk every month, and uh, and so I got to figure out uh, where to get that money to pay it, and uh, I'm going to try and get some of it from Battle Road USA by teaching uh, uh, self defense survival combat shooting. And uh, we're going to have several courses coming up in the very near future. The first one is going to be next weekend. Not this coming weekend, but the weekend of the 31st. And that is our fighting shotgun course. We talked to you about it last week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail of it right now. So fighting shotgun course will teach you how to use your home and personal defense shotgun, uh, how to run it like it is supposed to be run, give you the skills and techniques to do it uh, uh and that is Saturday, August 31st. Uh, it's a six-hour course. I believe it runs at $125. You can go to BattleRoadUSA.com, click on the Fighting Shotgun course, and that will take you to the info page, and then you can just uh, pop on over to the Event Bike page, 
sign up there. Uh, I know two more people signed up today. I don't know how many. I don't know how many slots are left. They probably will tell you on the event bite page. But if you want to come to the shotgun course, and we'd love to have you. And I know that as of today, I know that there is still some room. I don't know how much. Then uh, the zombie running gun is going to be in October, October 12th. Uh, I just talked about that. Uh, November 9th and 10th is the combat car, uh, carbine course taught by uh, Staff Sergeant John Hawes. And uh, John is no stranger to this course. He's taught uh, combat carbine and combat shooting techniques uh, for quite a while. Uh, he's taught over 5,000 uh, United States servicemen the uh, combat carbine course. Now, he's taken the pussy to top of the military, which was uh, developed in part by uh, Delta. I mean, he's tweaked it uh, from other courses that he's taken, and then certainly uh, from the years that he spent actually dueling with the bad guys. So you're going to get the benefit of uh, all John's experience doing that. That is a ninth and tenth. I believe that course is 250 bucks in two days, and it's for your combat carbine. Uh, and 500 rounds, I believe, is a round count for it. Uh, then immediately following that will be the Precision Rifle Sniper course. And that's going to run from uh, November 11th through the through the 15th. And uh, that will be five days. And the, uh, the course is, course cost is $500. This is going to teach you how to use your centerfire rifle with uh, good optics to make the shot at distance. You can go to the, the page at uh, BabylonUSA.com. It will give you more information on it. But I went to the course last uh, uh, in April, I guess, in April, and I'm telling you, it was a fantastic course. It taught me a great deal that I didn't know. Let me put the pieces together for the for the bit of uh, precision rifle that I that I didn't know, and really taught me a great deal about the range estimation, the optics, about the mathematics and ballistics of making the shot, uh, and gave me a lot of confidence because I've used my uh, centerfire rifle with iron sights and even even some with with optics uh, to make shots at distance, but. But know with the precision that I was able to get after taking this course. Uh, I was very happy to make consistently make hits uh, with cold bore at 600 meters, uh, first shot cold bore shot, uh, and at targets at unknown distances uh, after taking this course. That's because I could I could look at the targets. I can compare the targets to uh, to something that I knew the size of. I could then use my glass and the optics in order to determine the size of the object. After determining the size of the object, I could determine the distance. Once I had the distance down, I could dial it in, and I had the confidence to make the shot. That's what you're going to learn in those five days. Then... Uh, uh, 
three days after that course will be another course. And that's taught by John Hawes also because uh, John has spent years in uh, in the military recently. All of the staff at Battle Road are veterans. Together we have about uh, 65, 70 years of service. But John is the most recent uh, service member. And he spent uh, several deployments uh, as a sniper and scout on a kill team with 10th Mountain. And uh, during uh, one of the last deployments that he met, he made to Afghanistan in Gordas province that uh, John and a few of his buddies found themselves uh, locked up tight with the Taliban uh, at a rate of about uh, eight or nine to one. There are 10 guys fighting about uh, 70 to 80 guys uh, for about 12 hours. And, uh, and several of the folks on his team were killed. Uh, and, uh, and one of the team members was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. And John was awarded the Silver Star. And and he used his skills in Afghanistan. He just talked the talk. He walked the walk there. So the information that you're getting is not theoretical information. The information that you're getting beginning the course is from somebody who has used it. All right? And we're not teaching, we're not trying to teach folks to become uh, Day of the Jackal people or... Uh, 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 whatever the last movie movie was with Mark Wahlberg. We're not trying to teach folks to become uh, snipers and assassins. What we're trying to teach you to do is be able to get the most out of your center fire rifle with good optics. And after teaching, after taking this course, that's what you're going to be able to do. All right? Right after that, uh, I believe it's the 19th through the 23rd, is going to be squad school. And this is a school started out by another uh, couple of our instructors. Uh, K-Dan is one of them up in New York. And K-Dan and uh, his buddy started the school, and then they brought uh, John in. And now I think John and K-Dan are working together in this project. And uh, they're teaching squad school. And squad school teaches you how to uh, how to use yourself as an individual and uh, – and it teaches you uh, survival, evasion, and escape techniques, uh, land navigation, uh, camouflage, building shelters, building shooting positions. Uh, it'll teach you the basic techniques of patrolling, uh, as well as uh, a ton of other stuff. And the, there will be uh, a couple of days of class, and then the rest of the instruction will be done uh, during a field training exercise, and you'll be learning it uh, out on your field training exercise, and you'll be you'll be sleeping out in the woods, or you'll be uh, you will be making your own survival meal from uh, from the from the live game that we are going to give you, and. You're going to uh, process a live game and prepare it. You're going to make a fire and prepare it. You're going to keep yourself warm in November in 
taxes by building uh, your survival shelter. And this is going to teach you a great deal. Uh, it's going to be stuff that is going to be invaluable in the event that you ever, ever have to use it. All right? And that will be the 19th to the 23rd. All right? So that that's the courses that we have coming up. And uh, if you want more information, go to uh, BattleRoadUSA.com. And uh, once again, I'm going to give you guys a real quick, uh, uh, real quick reminder of the number three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. That's our number if you want to call in. You can call in to tell folks thanks, and uh, you're also welcome to call in during the. Uh, uh, the course of the show, if you have any questions, uh, any comments that you want to make about uh, anything that we're talking about, or if you need me to clarify something, then be sure to call in. I mean, that's the whole reason I do the show live, uh, and then I have to nail myself down uh, every Thursday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. If, if uh, you know, if it's going to be, if it's a case of where, uh, where it doesn't matter if I do it live or not, then I could just uh, record it in a podcast and shoot it off that way. But I want to give your folks uh, a chance to be able to call in live with questions or comments or stories of their own, stuff like that. Uh, because uh, I don't have to tell you this, but I don't know everything, right? So I'm always willing to to have somebody call in and say, look, here's what, here's what I do. This is what I find works for me. I'm always willing to to hear that, uh, and every instructor should be, because that's the only way you're going to continue to learn by making sure that you're listening. You get your listening ears open. All right, let's get started with uh, with talking about the fundamentals of the shot. Uh, and there's plenty of stuff. If you get to an apple seed, you know, we teach it in a certain fashion. We're going to teach you, first off, we're going to teach you about uh, swings and positions, building a stable shooting position. And that's great, but there's not a lot I can do about that uh, from the radio, right? I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to look at the sling in order for me to tell you the difference between a hasty and a uh, and a loop sling or a hasty, hasty, uh, it's not going to do too good for me just to tell you what it is that you're seeing it. That's for more of a visual aspect. So we're going to jump past slings and position. Uh, and you can, I have spoken about it on the radio. You can find that uh, in the shows, archives of the shows. Uh, and we're going to talk about the six steps of firing the shot. Uh, the Six steps to firing the shot are not is not something that uh, Appleseed dreamed up out of the blue. Something that we said, "Hey, look, let's try this and and see if it works." Who knows? It may not work. We don't know. It's a completely uh, completely new thing that nobody's ever tried before. That's not the way it is. The the skills and techniques that we're teaching you are techniques that have already been proven true. They're already proven methods, uh, they've been proven through 500 years of firearms usage, and 
And what we've done, we just kind of boil them down, and we're just giving you the essence of it. So, so this the stuff that I'm about to tell you isn't brand new stuff. This is stuff that's tried and true. It's not like will this work? It's this works. Uh, as long as you apply it, if you listen to the instruction, apply it correctly, it's going to work. It's just that's the way it is. All right. The the first the first step in these six steps of firing the shot. When you look at your firearm, just about any type of firearm, is going to have a sighting system on it. And depending on what firearm it is, and it could be, it could look a lot of different ways. But normally, no matter if it's a, a handgun or a long gun, it's going to, and it has iron sights, it's going to have some type of an iron sight sighting system on it. Now, some of the, uh, some of the, uh, Long guns have jumped ahead from iron sights to glass. They no longer carry the iron sights on them. Regardless, it's still going to work for the for the scoped systems the same way it does, uh, relatively same way it does for the iron sighted system. But what you're going to do with the with your iron sight system, the first step is going to be sight alignment. Sight alignment, and that's just exactly what it says it is. You are going to ensure that you are properly aligning the front and rear sights uh, in the correct relationship developed by the manufacturer of the sights to each other. If you have the the traditional front blade and rear notch sights, then in almost every single case except for a couple. I'll talk about one in just a minute. Right now, we're going to talk about the general uh, cases. Is going to be that you have the front blade is going to be centered in the rear notch. It's going to be centered and it's going to be at the same height. That means that the the front blade is going to be in the center of the rear notch and it's going to be at the same height as the two ears on the notch. Not going to be higher. It's not going to be lower. It's going to be at the same height and centered. <clears throat> if you have the front post and rear peep uh, sights, then the front post is your. What you're going to do mentally is uh, is create uh, a symmetrical crosshairs in the rear aperture. You're going to divide it uh, horizontally and vertically. And you're going to set the post centered in the rear aperture with the top of the front post level with a line that would cross it horizontally. Uh, so it would be no different than having the the rear peep aperture, which is I means it's a circle. It's an open circle. If you have an open circle and you had a uh, imaginary dot uh, in the dead center of it, your front post, the top of your front post would come up and touch the center of that dot, of a, the dot that would be in the center. All right? That's how you're going to align it. Now, this doesn't have to be an exactly perfect uh, kind of placement. Uh, and you're going to be helped by your eye and your mind. 
your eye naturally wants to center and straighten things. You know, when you go into a room and you see a picture that's uh, that's slightly, you know, akimbo, then you want you you want to walk over to it and straighten it, right? That's what you want to do. Whenever you you see anything that uh, that isn't quite centered, your your mind is trying to center it. And once you get it centered, and that's what's happening here. So it doesn't have to be exactly perfectly to the uh, to the point zero zero one perfect. But it needs to be centered, and it needs you, it needs to be done the same way every time. So however you do it, you have to do it the same way. Even if for some bizarre reason you wanted to sight your rifle in where the where the front sight was touching the the top right hand corner of your aperture, you could do that. You can you can make good shots with it that way. But you would have to do it every time the same way. All right. So however you're going to set it up, however your eye is going to determine that the post is centered in the rear aperture, it needs to be done and it needs to be repeated every time. And and, and normally it's not going to be that difficult because, like I said, your your mind is going to work in conjunction with your eye in order to do it and then to do it the same way every time. You're just going to make sure that, that you're remembering you're going to do it the same way every time. You're not going to... You're not going to let it go up a little higher. Uh, you're not going to let that front blade go up a little higher than the two ears on the notch. You're going to make sure that it's not setting down below the two blades on the notch. Uh, it's going to be exactly even with the two blades on the rear notch, or it's going to be exactly centered in the rear aperture. <clears throat> One of the differences to this would be the sights the factory sites in the Ruger 1022. And I mentioned this that there there are other there are other situations where you see it. And the only reason I'm mentioning this one particular one is because we happen to uh, at Appleseed we happen to use the Ruger 1022 quite quite a bit uh, in teaching at the 25 meter. So the difference with the Ruger 1022 at the factory sites is that if you look at the rear notch, <clears throat> it will have a plate, a plate in between the two ears, and the plate has a cup shape in it, like a half of a sphere is cut into it. That is going to be where you put the front sight. It's going to nestle itself into that cup because the the plate that is attached between the two ears of the rear sight, it moves up and down. So in order for you to make sight adjustments that are going to have any effect, you're going to have to be using that, that cup in that plate, the half sphere in that plate in the rear sight and put that front post, which is when you look at it from the rear, is going to look like a, a circle. It's going to look like a ball. You're going to put that ball into that cup and that's how you're going to make your sights aligned. All right? That's uh, the only difference we're going to talk about right now. So sight alignment is simply getting the front and rear sights into their correct alignment. <clears throat> then we'll have the second step to find a shot, which is sight picture. 
Now, site picture is going to be making sure that you've done the first step, which is site alignment, and then taking those aligned sites and putting them correctly onto the target. <clears throat> and when I say putting it correctly onto the target, that's going to the place that you put those sites is going to depend on on how you've been taught to shoot or, or, or who you're shooting for. If you come to an apple seed, normally we're going to tell you to uh, to put the front sight at the 6 o'clock position on your target, and that's going to be your correct side alignment. Then you're going to take the correctly uh, aligned front and rear sights, and you're going to place the front sight at the 6 o'clock on your position. Uh, if you were going to shoot at uh, a pumpkin, then it would look like you were you were placing a pumpkin on top of a fence post, and that's how your your sights would be placed, how your sights would be put onto the target. If you're shooting at a like a D target or a silhouette, you would bring the front sight up until it touched the center of the bottom of the silhouette. And that would be a properly aligned sight picture. If you are shooting with the military, most of the time the military wants you to shoot the center of mass or center of target. If you did that, then what you would do is, in your using your mind, you would uh, make a an X or put a cross here, middle cross here, on the picture, and then bring the front sight up until it touched the intersection of the two lines. Um, that would be the center of mass of your target. Whatever you use, whatever you use, whatever works for you is fine. But whatever you use, you have to use the same thing every time. You can't say, okay, today I'm going to use uh, the 6 o'clock hole, and tomorrow I'm going to use center of mass. Because you have to be consistent because when you sight in your rifle, you're sighting it in for a specific, uh, with a specific sight picture. And and just deciding to put this front sight somewhere isn't going to change your zero. Uh, it's just going to change where you're putting your front sight. So whatever you use, uh, you'll have to be consistent in using it. At Appleseed, the reason we teach using the six o'clock hold is because we started out teaching, uh, and we still do, we're still teaching you to shoot a a rat grade rifle with iron sights and uh, surplus ammunition, and to be able to shoot that rifle uh, out to 500 meters at a, uh, at a typical D-sized silhouette and hit that target. And the problem with shooting at a target at 500 meters, at a like a man-sized target at 500 meters, is that the target becomes very, very small. So if you attempted to put your front sight into the middle of the target, it would become difficult because your front sight is many, many, many times larger than the than the the man-sized silhouette at 500 meters. So when you're when you are using the six o'clock hole 
then you're zeroing so that your round is going to impact two minutes above your front sight. And that's going to allow you to see the target uh, while not obscuring it and uh, allow your, your, your round to impact above the front sight. Okay, so that's, uh, that is your detailed explanation of that. And that uh, finishes up the second step, which is site alignment. So we've covered site, I mean site picture. Site alignment is ensuring that the front and rear sites are properly aligned according to the way that they were built to be aligned, the way the manufacturer has determined that they should be aligned. Your site picture is going to be placing the properly aligned sites on your target in the same place every time. I don't mean in the same place. Uh, I mean uh, getting the same site picture. That means uh, knowing where your round is going to strike and putting your sights on the target in the correct place in order to cause your round to strike at that place. All right? That brings us to the third step, and that is respiratory pause. <clears throat> the respiratory pause is its very simple. Whenever you take a breath in or whenever you exhale, your body is moving. It has to because your chest is either expanding to take air in or it's contracting in order to expel the air that's also mixed with, uh, with other gases. So every time you breathe in and every time you breathe out, you are moving. In order to make a shot consistently, you have to eliminate any movement, and that means that you cannot take the shot while you are breathing, uh, temporarily, right? So you'll need to have a temporary respiratory pause. Uh, and where do you take it? Once again, we're not going to tell you that you have to take the respiratory pause at any one place. Whatever works best for you is going to be your respiratory pause. Uh, but once again, it needs to be consistent. You can, as you're learning to shoot, as you're learning to take the shot, you can do things differently. You can adjust your respiratory pause. But when you're first learning, uh, my advice is usually for folks to take their respiratory pause at the bottom of their cycle. Uh, and you take this pause uh, involuntarily uh, thousands of times a day. You breathe in, you breathe out, and then you pause for a second. Then you breathe in, you breathe out, and then you pause for a second, and you repeat this all day long. The only time that you don't have a, a significant respiratory pause is when you're running or you're excited and you're rapidly breathing in and out because your body requires that amount of oxygen in order for it to function. <clears throat> oxygen is a poisonous gas to humans. 
uh, yeah, we breathe it in, but it's actually pretty dangerous. Uh, you know, it's flammable, it's explosive, uh, it can kill you. And if you want to find out how easy it is for you to become poisoned by oxygen, <clears throat> simply uh, do uh, uh, do 30 seconds, if you can, of breathing in and out without taking a respiratory pause. Just <laughs> breathe in and out, just like that, over and over again, for 30 seconds. See if you can do it. And normally you can't. Normally before you hit the 30-second mark, you're going to have oxygen poisoning and bang, you're going to hit the floor. So thousands of times a day, you breathe in, you fill your lungs, you breathe out, and then you pause while the uh, while the gases, while the oxygen and other gases that you've taken in uh, are being used by your body, and more blood is being cycled up into the lungs so that that blood can uh, can receive the benefits of inhaling the the air that you're breathing. The air that you're breathing isn't oxygen. There's oxygen in it. The majority of the of the gas that you breathe in is an inert gas. <clears throat> so you're going to breathe in, breathe out, and then there's going to be a chance for you to take a pause. During that pause is when we suggest you take the shot. Now, there are other ways you can do it. You can breathe in, you can let a little bit out, and then stop, block off the rest, and then take the shot. Or you can breathe in and let out half uh, a lungful, or three-quarters, five-eighths, or seven-eighths, or whatever you want to do. The only problem with some of this is that in order for you to make the shot, you need to be as consistent as possible. It means you need to be doing everything the same every time in order for you to in order for you to be consistent. And it's hard to determine uh the exact same place every time if you're taking in half a breath or, or laying out half a breath where that is. All right. Now, some people do it uh, do a good job of it, and you can too. If you practice doing it, you could do it too. You could you could uh, have your respiratory pause on a half breath in or a half exhalation or something like that. Uh, you'll just have to do it in the same place. And for me, I found that for me, what works best is taking a breath in, letting the breath out. As I let the breath out, I'm also relaxing a good deal of my body, and I call it settling in. I'm settling into the shot, and I breathe in, I breathe out. As I'm breathing out, I'm settling into the shot, and I'm beginning part of the next phase of making the shot that we'll talk about in a minute. Whatever it is, you need to do it consistently. Uh, so you can make your respiratory pause at the bottom of your cycle, and that is after you've taken a breath in and you've exhaled it. Now, you don't have to push the air out. All you have to do is let the air equalize between your lungs and the outside. Once you're at that point, you can simply stop. You don't really have to do much of a choke off or hold off or anything else. You can simply stop there. You should have a good three to four seconds where you can take the shot without having to breathe in or out. Uh, if you go much longer than that, 
then you start your body starts suffering from a lack of uh, of oxygen. Then you'll need to you'll need to start over and and reboot and run the cycle over and get to that same place again. Uh, but that is where your respiratory pause is, and it's simply ensuring that you're not breathing during the shot. <clears throat> the fourth step in taking a shot is is a focus phase, and it's two parts. One is a physical aspect, and one is a mental aspect. The physical aspect is focusing your eye on the front sight. Now, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about sight alignment and sight picture. And sight alignment was the process of correctly aligning the front sight with the rear sight, or whatever the whatever the factory maintains it was crafted to be. And then in step two, we're talking about sight picture, which is taking the front, the correctly aligned front and rear sight, and then placing that on a tar on the target, and placing it consistently uh, in the same place on the target. And what that has left us with now is three items that we have to look at while we're making the shot. I want to look at the front sight, the rear sight, and the target. Your eye is uh, is actually a mechanical device, no different than uh, a camera uh, than a camera uh, lens. And if you take a camera lens and and you look out and about, then you will see that, uh, or you'll see something clearly. You'll have to focus on it. That means that there is a focal plane. In order for you to, to see something clearly, your eye has to be dialed forward or backwards until it until it mechanically achieves the distance where it is on the same focal plane as the item that it is looking at. So we now have to determine, because we're looking at three different items that are at three different distances, and yet our eye being a mechanical device, we can only focus uh, on one local plane at a time. Certainly we can look out, uh, we can look around the room and out a window at the same time. I can look out the window and I can see uh, cattle in the back field. At the same time, I can see the window shades, and uh, I can see a bird uh, on the telephone line. I can see a couple of frogs hopping toward the house here. I can see the dog down on the floor inside the house. I can see all this at once, but I can't see any of it clearly until I pick a specific item, and then I cause my eye to focus on it, not do nothing conscious that I do, I simply look at it. The, the brain takes over causing the eye uh, to do the mechanical part and focus and either extend or withdraw uh, the focal plane until it uh, is focused on the subject that I'm looking at. <clears throat> but I cannot see anything clearly until I look at it and focus on it. Once I've done that, 
I can see the other items, but they're not really in focus. So now I have three items to look at, but I can only be in focus on one. So now I have to determine what I should be looking at. What should I be looking at and seeing it clearly? And the answer is the whichever of those three things that would cause the rifle to be pointing uh, at the target. Um, uh, looking at the target doesn't cause the rifle to do it. Looking at the rear sight doesn't cause the rifle to do it. I can, have a, I can be looking at the rear sight. I can have the rifle turn facing 90 degrees away from me. I can still see the rear sight. I can see the front sight. They won't be in alignment. So that only leaves one thing, and that's the front sight. The front sight on your rifle is what determines where the round is going to impact. That means in order for me to make the shot, I've got to be focused on the thing that determines where my round is going to impact. That's the front sight. That means I have to be focused on the front sight. The rear sights may be a bit fuzzy. I'll see them, but they won't quite be in focus. The target itself may be a bit fuzzy. Uh, even if I'm looking at uh, 500 meters away, I'm going to see a crystal clear, sharp outline of the front sight, and then right above it, it's giving me a little bit of a fuzzy silhouette. Now, it doesn't matter if the target is a little bit out of focus, because if I put the sharply in-focus front sight at the 6 o'clock position on the slightly out of focus or blur there, I'm going to hit in the center of the slightly out of focus blur. So it doesn't matter if I if I'm if I don't have the target exactly in focus. Uh, now you, you got to be able to see the target, right? You can't just be guessing where the target is. You have to be able to see it, but it doesn't have to be completely in focus. However, the front sights do need to be completely in focus. Now. <clears throat> You can, there are ways that you can train your eye to do this. Uh, I tell folks to take uh, take like a Sharpie marker or something, hold it out at arm's length, and hold it uh, in between you and some other thing that you're looking at. And then look at the other thing, and look back at the Sharpie. And look at the other thing, and look back at the Sharpie. And keep doing this. And what you're going to be doing is you're training yourself to uh, throw focus. You look at the target, and now you're going to throw focus back to the to the Sharpie that is in your hand and it is extended at arm's length. You're going to look at the target, and you're going to throw focus back to the Sharpie. Look at the target, throw focus back to the Sharpie. And you repeat this. Uh, I, and we'll talk about your drive fire game in a minute. This is going to be part of your drive fire game. And that is teaching yourself to throw focus. You're going to look at the target, and then you're going to throw focus back to the Sharpie. You get your rifle in place, you're going to look at the target, then you're going to throw focus back to the front sight. Look at the target, throw focus back to the front sight. Because the front sight's going to determine where your round impacts. So you want to make absolutely sure that you know exactly where the front sight is. So you can practice 
throw in your focus. I know a lot of folks say, well, I don't know if am I doing it right or not. You will know. Like I said, if you do the the exercise with the Sharpie, then you'll know. You'll know if you're throwing your focus. Same thing with your rifle. You'll know. Uh, it takes a little bit of practice, but you'll know it. That's the beginning of part four, which is the focus phase of the six steps. It's the physical part of the step, and that is focusing your eye on the front sight. <clears throat> the next part of the fourth step is focusing your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Now, this is a mental aspect, right? There's nothing that you physically have to do uh, other than if the, if the front sight comes off target, you will have to physically move it back. But this is the mental aspect of it. And a lot of times, uh, even me, when I first heard this, I thought, well, isn't this, isn't this pretty an, an infantile uh, bit of direction? If I'm shooting, uh, where else would my front sight be? And my answer is, after after plenty of times of, uh, of doing it myself, watching other people doing it, is it could be anywhere. All right? Especially if you're just learning. It could be anywhere because, uh, especially with new shooters, we're asking them to do a lot of things at once when we're teaching them to shoot or, or if we're teaching, even, even for people that have been shooting for a while, we're teaching them a, a new technique of shooting and we have to teach it in a linear fashion, right? We have to step one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, because that's the only way we can teach it. We can't we can't teach it the way it's going to be occurring, which is all of these things uh, happening together and ending up uh, all intersecting at the singularity, which is the folk is the the shot. We have to teach it in a linear fashion. That's the way people learn it, and that's the way they apply it to their shooting. They're one, two, three, four, five, six, and and the minute that you take the command of your mind off of keeping the front side on the target, then you're allowing it to do other things, allowing it to move somewhere else or for your eyes to look at something else. Or uh, Believe me, it's I've seen a lot of strange things, so nothing would surprise me. And that's why we have the step. The second part of step four is focusing your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Now, if there was a most important part of the six steps to find the shot, this is it. <clears throat> All the steps are important, but uh, just like uh, step number one, the first rule, the first safety rule, keeping your muzzle in a safe direction, this is going to be the most important part of the six steps to find the shot because. If the front sight is not on the target when you fire, it doesn't matter how well you've done all the other steps. It doesn't matter how perfect your uh, respiratory pause is, how perfectly your sight alignment is, how perfect your sight picture was, and, and all the rest of the steps that we're going to learn. It doesn't matter how good they were because your front sight wasn't on the target when you fired. 
toe, your round is not going to impact in the target because your front side wasn't there. The front side determines where the round is going to impact. If it's not on the target, your round is not going to impact in the target. That's just the way it is. So the second part of the fourth step, focusing your mind on keeping your front side on the target. It's the most important part of this of this whole six steps. All right? Now it's not it's not difficult, but it has to be done. It has to be your mind has to keep the front sight on the target. Now for me, it was difficult enough that that I had to repeat it as a mantra going into the shot. Now, this is many years ago, but but I had to do it. I still do it every now and then simply because because I taught myself to do it many years ago. I mean, every once in a while I'll catch myself as I'm selling into the shot going, front side on the target, front side on the target. Because it's, uh, you know, it's part, it was part of my relaxing uh, ceremony uh, you know, of making a shot. So you may have to do that. You may have to repeat that as you're settling into the shot. Uh, you may have to repeat front sight on the target, front sight on the target. Uh, all right. <clears throat> so now that you've done the the sight alignment, making sure the front and rear sights are correctly aligned, you've got the correct sight picture, which is putting the correctly aligned front and rear sights onto the target in the correct position for you to make the shot. You've taken your respiratory pause, which is however you decided to ensure that you are not breathing while you're making the shot. Then you have focused your eye on the front sight, and you have focused your mind on keeping the front sight on the target. Now you're ready for the trigger squeeze, right? Because everything else is done, everything else is ready. Now we need to take this this moment in time to make the shot. And we're calling it trigger squeeze. A lot of people have different the terminology could be different. As long as it's something like trigger squeeze or trigger press and you're not hearing trigger yank or trigger jerk or something like that, okay, because those probably aren't the best ways. It needs to be a squeeze or a press or something that describes the gradually increasing rearward pressure on the trigger until it gets to the point that it causes the rifle to fire, all right? And a lot of people will tell you that that it should fire at a time that is somewhat of a surprise to you. Now, this is this is true and not true. Uh, this this description or these instructions work pretty good on folks that uh, that are beginning their shooting because it describes what we want them to do. Uh, but it doesn't work so well in other situations, okay? And the reason that we're saying it like this, that it should be somewhat of a surprise to you, is because what we're trying to get folks to understand is that they can't yank the trigger or jerk the trigger. 
in, in order for you to make the rifle fire when you want it to fire, you have to jerk the trigger. You have to, you have to give it a good yank. That is until, until you figured out how to make the shot without jerking the trigger. Then you can make the rifle fire when you want it to without jerking the trigger. It's just learning to do it is when it should be a surprise. Regardless of the instruction, regardless of the terminology, what you're going to have to do is to put your finger on the trigger in in the correct way so that you as an individual are able to exert directly rearward pressure on the trigger with the least amount of force that it takes to cause the trigger to release the sear and fire the rifle, all right? And what I mean by the least amount of pressure is if when you look at the trigger, the trigger is going to be uh, set up like a lever and fulcrum. And the most power that you can achieve from the lever and fulcrum is when you... Come on, Molly. Putting my dog inside is whenever you put your the exert pressure on the end uh, of the lever. That's where you get the most pressure. Same thing with your trigger. If your finger slides up to the top of the trigger where it disappears into the stock, it's going to take you a lot more force to cause the trigger to break. And exerting a lot more force, pushing harder on the trigger is going to cause, uh, is probably going to cause muscles to move the rifle. And we're trying to make the shot without moving the rifle. So you're putting your finger down at the very end, as low on the trigger as you can get. The trigger should intersect your finger somewhere between the tip of the swirl of the pad on your trigger finger before it gets to the first crease. Uh, this is for most of the battle rifles that use a wood stock. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it works out better for you to go to the next uh, digit space if you're shooting a pistol grip stock, like an AR rifle. The reason that I see that is because if you, what you don't want to do is push the trigger. And that that comes when you're using too much of the tip of the trigger and the tip of the finger on the trigger to one side. And you don't want to pull the trigger. And that's whenever your finger is sticking too far through the uh through the uh, uh through the to the grip. I mean, through the uh, across the trigger, and whenever you're squeezing the trigger, instead of reflecting to the rear pulling, you're pulling it to the right. If you put it too much on the tip of the finger, then whenever you're squeezing the trigger, you're pushing it to the left for a right-handed shooter. So it needs to be at the correct position on your finger so that whenever you're squeezing the trigger, 
It is a directly rearward press. And you're going to gradually increase the pressure until you cause the trigger to break. Now, you can practice this with uh, like a a clicking pen, like a big click pen. You can put the tip of your finger on the pen and slowly press it more and more and more until finally it clicks. That's the same thing you're going to want to do with your trigger. You're going to want to put gradually increasing pressure on the trigger until you cause it to break. <clears throat> and you're going to be doing this without jerking it. Uh, you're going to be doing it in a, in a slow, fluid movement. <clears throat> All right, that brings us to uh, to step five. I mean, to step six. That's the the follow through, and the follow through takes place right there uh, on the trigger squeeze, <clears throat> because the the shot needs to take place with no movement from the rifle during the shot. Now we've been, we've been working on this uh, all along to get to this point. Uh, if you go to Annapolis, the beginning of the instruction will be on your position, how to build a stable shooting position so that there's no movement or little movement as possible during the shot. There's no way to make an accurate shot if there is inherent movement in the position or that you introduce movement into the shot by something else that you do. So you're going to have a stable shooting position. Then you're going to follow, you're going to execute the shot by the six steps. And then once you have fired the shot, you're going to hold the trigger to the rear. The reason you're doing this is to continue to keep movement from being entered into the shot. And I know that that most folks, myself included, when I first started shooting technically, think that once it went bang, once it goes bang, that's it. There's nothing you can do after that. But the reality is, is that that's not true. The the bullet when the prime when the hammer first strikes the primer, the bullet is traveling how fast? I asked the folks at the Apple see this. The bullet is traveling how fast? And the answer is zero. When the hammer first strikes the primer, bang, uh, before it before there is any type of ignition, before the projectile is left, it's traveling at zero. The there has to be a burn of the powder that uh, that creates the pressure that drives the bullet from the barrel, and this happens in an almost instantaneous fashion. But it's not quite instantaneous. It actually has a measurable amount of time that it takes for the trigger to be squeezed, the hammer to strike the primer on the shell and for the bullet to leave the barrel. All right? And while it's in this stage, movement can cause uh, a change in the impact of the round down range. Absolutely, it can cause a change in the impact of the round down range. <clears throat> so what you're trying to do 
is to eliminate any movement. And this is going to include following through, holding the trigger to the rear, not moving. You're not going to breathe. You're not going to move. You're not going to blink. Nothing for a fraction of a second until the projectile has cleared the barrel. And that's the first part of your follow-through. At the same time, you're going to take a mental snapshot of where the front sight was when the trigger broke. And your mind is really uh, amazing and linked up with your eyes. This is this is easy to do. There is that, that fraction of a second in time when the trigger has broken before you receive the recoil. And your mind can take a very quick snapshot and hold it if you tell it to and hold it so that you can see where your front sight was when you made the shot. Now, you're supposed to be looking at your front sight. And while you're looking at your front sight, you can take a snapshot of where it was on the target when the trigger broke. And you're doing this to make sure that when the trigger breaks, you're looking at you're looking at this picture to see where the front sight was so that you will know if it was in the correct place or not when the shot was made. Because... Many things can happen uh, while you're making a shot. There can be wind. It can be anything that can cause the tiniest movement of the rifle's barrel while you're making a shot. So what you want to do is capture that that thousandth of a second of where the front sight was when the shot was taken so that you can see if it was right where it was supposed to be if it was exactly where it was supposed to be, or if it moved during the shot. If it moved during the shot and you and your eye took a picture of it and it, the front sight looked like it was a little bit to the right and low on the target, then when you get down to the target line and you look at the target, if there's a hole that is low right, then that's a good shot, all right? There's nothing wrong with that shot. It may not be... Well, you want the shot, but there was nothing wrong with that shot because the rifle fired where you told it to fire. If you told it to fire low and right, then and it did, then then that's a good shot. All right, you can't spank the rifle for that. That was a good shot. What you have to do is fix where you put the front sight. But you want to make sure that the rifle is firing where you're telling it to fire. If everything looked perfect and you get down there, and there's a whole high high to the left, then you know something is wrong. Either it's wrong with your sights, or it's wrong with your technique, but something is wrong. And and the reason we're asking you to do this is because we don't want you to, uh, we don't want you to look at your target caveman style. Uh, you know, like go down there and you see that the shot is high left, and you go, oh, something wrong. But you have no idea what it is. We want you to be able to start determining what the problem is. So the only way to do that is by knowing all the facts involved. Uh, the first fact you know, if this is the case, is that the sites were where they should have been. They were exactly where they should be when I took the shot. So that tells me that something else is wrong besides my my job of putting the sites on the target. Something else is wrong. That means that that the rifle is either uh, incorrectly sighted in or that the sights work their way loose 
or something is going on other than my technique. All right? Your job as a rifleman is to make sure that you are observing all of the stuff that you're doing. You're putting all the facts together, all the information together to give you the best information possible on making the shot. In order for you to do this, you need to know where the sights were when the rifle fired. And uh, uh, the old guide is telling me that the time between the trigger release and the ignition of the primer is called lock time. Lock time. I can only guess this was uh, referring back to uh, flintlocks when they fired. Because if you watch a flintlock in action, the time between the trigger squeeze and the actual uh, the actual round leaving the barrel is a long time. There's a lot of things that can happen between the trigger breaking and the projectile leaving the barrel on a front lock because it's a long time. It's almost like a uh, you know the uh, uh, the drum work that they do uh, at the end of a joke. You know, uh, so I said, take my wife. That's about the same amount of time that it takes uh, for the round to leave the barrel on a front lock. So that's called lock time. It's the same thing with modern rifles. The only difference is it's not that long. But it's still it's still a long enough time for the projectile to be acted on. All right? You've got to hold the trigger to the rear. All right, so <clears throat> so that takes care of the the six tips to firing the shot. Now I'm looking at the uh, looking at the switchboard now. I forgot to look. I'm looking to see if anybody's calling in. I see that uh, the CCM's got a caller on the line. Uh, I'll take a look. I'll watch the switchboard, Sam. You can let me know if uh, that caller wants on the air. That's going to be the six steps to firing the shot. Now, what I was talking about earlier is that you don't need a uh, you don't need to be at the range to do this. Uh, you can do this very easily in your home. Uh, or anywhere that's not the range, you can do this very easily without being at the range and without ammunition, right? And and the amount of time you spend doing it is going to t- determine uh, how soon you master your rifle. The the time you spend at the range doing this is good. But there's no way that you can do the amount of it that you need to do. If you really are interested in becoming the master of your rifle, you're going to have to ensure that that you are spending time on your dry fire game. And that means going through the steps, like I just uh, explained them, the six steps, going through those steps over and over again, and like I said, you can do this in your home. Make sure that you that you check your rifle and the magazines uh, ten times, and make sure that 
There is no ammunition in the magazines, no ammunition in the rifles before you begin this. Ensure that there is no ammunition even in the same room that you are in. All right? I know this sounds it sounds like a like a joke, but it's not a joke. It's because because of the same reason that I told you a few minutes ago that you have to focus your mind on keeping the front side on the target. It's because as humans we've learned to do things uh by muscle memory and I'm talking about things like uh like driving to work. You drive to work every day. And I'm sure there are there are plenty of days where you drive to work and you go, How did, how did I get here? How did I don't even get here. Uh you don't remember anything you did and yet you still arrived at work safely. Okay? Uh you drove all the way there without thinking about it. Or you, there are things that you do in your house that you've done over and over that uh, you don't even think about it while you're doing it. Uh, you could do the same thing with uh, picking up a a round of loose ammunition or something and popping it into a magazine and not even thinking about it. You're sitting there talking on the phone, and when you're talking on the phone, you're you are doing your magazine changes, and you you're you reach over and you grab that round and you pop it into the magazine because that's where it goes. That's where you put it. Over and over for years, you pop it in the magazine, pop the mag in, and pop a round off. Don't even have ammunition in the same room with you when you do this. But make sure that you're doing it. Make sure that you're taking the time to do your dry fire game. Uh, every dry fire round that you fire is worth just as much as a live fired round. All right? Because the only difference between a live-fired round and a dry-fired round is going to be the absence of the recoil and report when you get to the actual trigger squeeze. But by the time you've got to that point, your your body and your mind has received all of the uh, all of the benefits of firing the shot that you can get from firing the shot. All right, you don't have to have the Report and recoil for you to get the benefit of it. So, you could fire thousands of rounds at no cost to you uh, and get all of the benefits of it and then use your range time simply for proving that you were doing it correctly. Now, I do want to put in... Uh, a bit of a reminder, some of the older firearms uh, don't like you to to fire the, uh, to squeeze the trigger uh, on an empty cylinder or an empty chamber. Uh, some of the older firearms, uh, and there may be some new ones that don't like it, but the, especially the older ones, for those, you can, uh, you can go grab you some snap caps or or you can make a snap cap, uh, whatever you need to do. Uh, the snap caps are pretty inexpensive. I think it's for a couple of bucks. You can get four or five and do it that way. Uh, if you have something like the Ruger 1022, uh, I imagine I have uh, a couple of hundred thousand dry fires on my, on the same uh, hammer and firing pin, and uh, they still work exactly the same. Uh, so they're made... Most of the modern firearms are made to take that. 
uh, but make sure you check before you do it, all right? Uh, all right, let's talk about target analysis now. When I was telling, talking to you earlier, when you do go to the range and you do shoot, folks would, uh, I know that for me, anyway, when I went to the range and I shot, I'd go to the range and I'd have a, you know, a box of, of ammunition and uh, I would put up whatever target I was using, I don't know, paper plate or uh, sometimes I would use a cans or bottles uh, because I really didn't have a clue on what I was supposed to be doing. So when you're completely ignorant, it's very blissful because you can you can do anything and you can call it good to go. If you're really interested in uh, improving your rifle marksmanship, that means when you go to the range, you have to have a game plan and you have to execute the game plan and uh, you can introduce some fun shooting into it, but you also need to make sure that you're adhering to the rules or whatever game plan that you devise. Uh, one of the important parts of the game plan is going to be having a target that you can shoot at that has a specific target area. That means, uh, and you can make your own, certainly easy. You can uh, you can just take a regular, uh, regular piece of paper, any kind of paper, paper with lines on it, no lines, whatever, it doesn't matter. And you can take a, uh, uh, a nickel or a quarter and lay it in the center of the paper or, or in several places on the paper, draw a line around the outside of it, and then darken in the center of it, and there you go. That is the thing that you're shooting at. Uh, what I wouldn't advise is shooting is shooting at general things, shooting at the paper or shooting at the bottle or at the tree or the tire or the cow. I would make sure that I'm shooting at something specific. <laughs> All right. Uh, then you're going to execute the shot by the six steps, just like we went through earlier. My phone is making some noises. Uh, if you guys can... Uh, it, if you can hear me, just uh, make sure you, somebody pop in on the chat and let me know that I'm still coming through. Okay, I think that I'm getting another call. I think that may be what it is. I just haven't used this phone in a long time. All right. Uh, so I would go around and shoot 20 rounds at a paper or something general, and then and then I would leave because I, I didn't know uh, I didn't know what to do. I, mean, I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and uh, and that's not going to work. You're going to have to have some kind of plan. You're going to have to shoot at a specific target. You're going to have to look at the way that your rounds uh, are hitting the target in order for you to gain information on what you're doing right or what you're doing wrong. Uh, some of the common things that folks do uh, incorrectly when they're shooting, there's the uh, the the big uh, the big four I call it is flinching, bucking, jerking, and blinking. Those are the those are the big common things that people do. And 
you will need to determine if you are doing any of these. Uh, my A lot of people do flinching. Flinching is whenever you're anticipating the recall and report of the, of the rifle firing, and you're jerking. I mean, your body is jerking in anticipation of it. So you're flinching. The rifle fires, and you flinch. You probably, your body kind of jerks, your teeth grit, your eyes might close, and your whole body kind of moves. Uh, you can, uh, what I did, let's see what I did. Mine was the exact opposite uh, as far as, you know, my personality was, I wasn't uh, flinching. Mine was bucking. And bucking is when you're, you're once again, you're anticipating the the rifle firing, you're anticipating the report and recall, but instead of flinching, you're, you're, you're like pushing yourself forward to meet it, you know, like, oh, you're going to, you're going to come at me, well, I'm going to come at you. So when the rifle fires, you're pushing yourself into it. And what that will usually do when you're, if you are a right-handed shooter and you're anticipating the shot and you're pushing your shoulder into it, pushing your right shoulder into it, then usually what it will do is it's going to move the sights down and to the left. So we're talking about having your your shot group spreading from the center of the target down into the like the seven o'clock to eight thirty areas of the target. Uh, so if you're shooting and you notice a consistent, uh, the rounds consistently grouping down in that area, that could be one of the things that is causing it. Now, this isn't, uh, very seldom is, is your target or shot group analysis going to instantly tell you what the one problem is. And on top of that, it's usually, I've, I've found it to be very seldom to be one problem. Uh, usually it is two or three problems grouped together. But this will at least push you in the direction so that you can start to figure out what it is. Because uh, if it's if you're getting a shot group that is, breaking from the center down into the 7 o'clock or 8.30 position in that area, uh, it's usually not It's usually not some of the of other things, like, uh, like uh, a breathing problem. It's usually not a breathing problem. You know, breathing problems, when you look at your target, a breathing problem normally will manifest itself in a, in a pretty much of a vertical movement up and down, across the target. If your target's in the, the center of the circle, then you should get pretty much of a vertical trail of uh, impact rounds above and below that dot, but staying in pretty in a pretty much of a of a linear fashion up and down above it. Uh, if you're canting the rifle, and canting the rifle is uh it's easy to do, especially for new shooters. I've even seen some some fairly experienced shooters doing it, especially when they start using the sling, like we're like we usually teach in apple seed. When you're camping rifle, that's causing the rifle to actually to actually turn. And normally, if you're a right-handed shooter, 
and you are using a sling that is causing the rifle uh, to to pull uh, to turn away from you, you know, to turn to your right, like this the sight and the scope are going to turn to your right because you're pulling directly from the bottom of the rifle where the sling is connected. That's causing the rifle to turn away to the right. <clears throat> now, I went through all different kinds of things whenever I was when I was first shooting and learning to do this, and I'm uh, and it, let me skip that and just go directly to uh, just to to end this section very quickly. With you can take a. Take a look at the shot group patterns, and I believe that they're posted online. And I'll find where they are posted, and I'll put them on the uh, on the blog site so that you can take a look at them and see. You can also uh, one of the things that I would suggest that you do is go to uh, FredsM14Stocks.com and order Fred's guide to becoming a rifleman because he's got all of this information in there, uh, including pictures of what your targets look like when you're shooting, whenever you're, uh, when there's a, a problem that can be determined, all right? He's got a whole section determined uh, or uh, dedicated to shot group analysis. Uh, but let me end it with this, and that is <clears throat> when you go to the range, after you have spent uh, 30 days doing your dry firing and working on your dry fire game, when you go to the range, you should go to the range with a definite plan of what you're going to do, what you hope to accomplish while you are at the range, uh, and how you're going to do it. Uh, I'm going to use this target. I'm going to put it up here. I'm going to use this uh, one-inch square target. I'm going to put it up here, and I'm going to shoot uh, from the prone position with a sling on this center target, and I'm going to shoot 10 rounds uh, in two five-round blocks. And I'm going to go down, and I'm going to check after each five-round block, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to see how the group looks. If on that first uh, five-round block, if something looks wrong, I'm going to attempt to correct it, and I'm going to shoot another five-round group. Then I'm going to go down, and I'm going to look at the target, and I'm going to see where the holes uh, or the impacts are. And then that will tell me what – that is going to tell me if I'm doing my – if my corrections were right or if I need to do something else. Uh, every time I go down to the target line, I'm going to take a Sharpie with me. I'm going to make a mark in these holes. I'm not going to completely cover them up, and I want to be able to see where they were originally. And uh, And I'm going to number them and I'm going to make marks on them so I can tell which holes were which, and I'm going to uh, then I'm going to move to uh, position X or Y or whatever. You go there with a plan, and then you execute the plan, and you use your target, the way that the rounds impact on your target, in order to help you identify and correct your firing line errors, Okay. So make sure that you are not ignoring 
where their rounds are impacting the target. I don't mean like jumping up and down going, hey, I hit it. All right, I'm not ignoring it. I mean to look at it uh, with some common sense and with some understanding of what the holes in the target could be telling you. All right? For more information on that, uh, you can go to the uh, you can go to the blog and I don't have the blog pulled up. I can't give you the address. I'll post it on uh, uh, the Apple feed uh, on the Rifleman Radio Show Facebook page. Uh, and then you can also order the Fred's Guide to Becoming a Rifleman. And uh, he's got uh, a couple of pages, and they're devoted specifically to that. Okay, the last few minutes of the show, I want to talk about uh, your medical prep. And uh, and like I said, we're not going to uh, we're not going to delve into this very deeply because <clears throat> uh, we already talked about some of this uh, on a previous show. And we're going to talk about it again several more times. I'll have a uh, a couple of uh, a couple of different guests coming up that are going to talk to you about uh, specifically about survival medicine and first aid and stuff like that. Uh, we have some guests coming up in about two months that are going to talk about uh, tactical first aid, tactical medicine, uh, gunshot wounds, what to do for them, how to treat them, and also how to comport yourself, how to how you should be applying first aid while there are still rounds flying in the situation. Okay? If you if you are trying to attend to someone, one of your friends or or something in in the middle of a shooting at a restaurant or a school or something else, how that you are going to try and affect uh effective first aid, life-saving first aid, while still keeping yourself protected. And that will be in about two months. Okay, what I want to touch on tonight is I want to remind you, I want to remind you to be doing your, uh, your medical prep, okay? Uh, I need you guys to be thinking about this and saying, uh, okay, what, I'm, what am I going to need if uh, there was a cessation of services or if there were uh, some type of natural or man-made disaster? What would I do? How would I go about uh, making sure that I could attend to the first aid needs of my my family or myself, my loved ones, and start working on it. Now, you don't have to do it all at once. A lot of people say, you know, I went, man, I wish I could have the stuff that you have, but there's just no way I can't afford it. Uh, because I tell them the same thing. Look, I can't afford it either. I couldn't afford to do it if I had to go out and get it all at once, but that's not how I did it. <clears throat> uh, I looked at my situation, and I said, okay, here's what I would, here's what I'd probably need first. I'd probably need this or this. Uh in my case, I said, well, what I'd probably need would be some bandages. So for me, that's what I went about getting first. And the way I did it was I looked to buy some in bulk, and I bought them off eBay, uh, you know, quite a few years ago. And somebody had just dumped, uh, you know, thousands of 
of the old Army uh, soldiers' individual bandage on there, and I I bought a I don't know four or five hundred of them and uh, and packed them away. Uh, I'm not telling you you got to do that, but I'm telling you that would be the 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 way that I could make it the least expensive. Uh, you can do it that way. Right now there are, I think there's 10 auctions going on, 10 government auctions that uh, I believe each one was selling like 150 of the of the current uh, combat first aid kits that, uh, you know, has all the stuff in it, a couple of uh, uh, combat bandages and stuff like that. You could do it that way. You could buy it that way. Uh, however you do it, you need to go ahead and get started. And you don't have to do it all at once. Uh, one of the first things I would start with was if you are, if you have to take some type of medication, uh, some type of maintenance prescription that you're taking that you need, uh, to keep your health at whatever level it's at, I would figure out a way to get more of that and get it stocked up. Now, I know that right now, insurance companies and the pharmacies and everybody else are working together to make sure that you, that that they're getting every penny from you and that you're not doing anything that they can't control or uh, they're controlling every single facet uh, that they can. The insurance companies are. <clears throat> that means if you need some type of prescription, you can't go to the to the pharmacy and say, "Look, I'm going to get uh, go ahead and give me six months of this," because uh, they'll say, "Oh no, your your insurance your insurance company said no way. Uh, they're not going to do it because well, good grief! What if you died? And the insurance company would have just bought six months of of uh, medicine they didn't have to pay for. Well, what if something happens? What if there's a, a natural or man-made disaster or a cessation of services and you require this medicine uh, to maintain your health or even to live? What about that? Uh, the insurance company isn't worried about that because that doesn't make them any money. All right, You being alive really doesn't make them that much money or they don't lose that much money if you die. They'll lose you as a premium payer, but they're not going to lose that that huge chunk that they would if you bought a bunch of medicine on your insurance and you and you either didn't have to take it anymore or, uh, you know, or you died or anything else. So you've got to figure out some way around that. Uh, and that may mean getting talking to your doctor saying, look, doc, I need you, what I need you to do is to write me a prescription and instead of going through your insurance company, you may need to take it down to the uh, take it down to the pharmacy and have to explain to the doctor what you're trying to do. Well, look, I'm not trying to get over. I'm not trying to do any of this. I'm gonna. I just want to pay cash for it. But I want to make sure that I have some stocked up in case something happens. So instead of going down and buying 30 pills once a month, uh, get him to write you a prescription for. I don't know, 300 of the pills. And uh, and even if that's too much to pay for all at once, you can go and get 100 of them and then go back, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, a month later, and get the other 100. 
but you'll probably have to pay for it in cash because, like I said, your insurance company is probably not going to pay for this. So figure out some way to do it because if something happens and you are cut off from the pharmacy, you're going to be on your own. So one of the first things I do is ensure that I have any prescription medication bought and stocked up in advance. You may want to go online. I know a lot of people uh, are hesitant about doing this, but you may want to go online and buy it uh, uh, buy it from a a, uh, a source that is outside the United States, either Canada or Mexico or something like that. Now, make sure that you're buying from a reputable source. You're not buying something that, that somebody is making with their Play-Doh set, uh, you know, in Jose's backyard. Make sure that you're getting a reputable source. But you may be able to do it that way. You can buy a lot of, ma- of medicine. You can buy cheaper uh, from other countries than you can in the United States. Uh, they may require a prescription, but once again, your doctor can do it, or some of them can will, will write you a prescription through an online uh, uh physician consultation, all right? Figure out a way to get it done. If there's any other type of medicine that's not uh, prescription medicine, but you still need it to maintain your current uh, level of health, make sure that that's the very first thing you get, and you get plenty of it, all right? Uh, Then after that, I would just start uh, gradually getting the basics. Uh, When I started with years ago was... Uh, when I would go to the store, and I would go to the dollar store on a regular basis, and I would say, okay, every time I go to the dollar store, I have a $5 bill, and I know what that's for. That is for uh, for $5 worth of medical gear. That's either uh, five $1 boxes of Band-Aids, uh, one $1 box of Band-Aids, uh, one uh, $3.50 uh, container of liquid Band-Aids, uh, Whatever, whatever it is, that's what I would do. I go there once a week and I get that. And after the course of a year, you know, that's uh, 50 items that you bought to help build up your uh, your first aid, your medical kit, and 250 bucks worth of stuff. But you didn't shell it out all at once. You did it uh, a lot less painfully doing it uh, once a week. And continue to build your your medical prep. Now, along with the items that you're getting for yourself, remember that it may be prudent for you to buy things that you can later on either use yourself or if you buy them in bulk or excess that you can trade them and use them as barter items, all right? You can use them uh, or trade them for other things you need. I don't know if I if I missed the lady saying something. Maybe I did. Uh, got nine seconds left. All right. All right, good. Ten seconds. All right, guys. Uh, I'll see you next uh, Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Thanks, everybody, who's listening tonight, and we'll see you next week. God bless and care for you all. Good night, folks.
Dragging who we need You call this liberty 